We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hello, I'm Cheryl Broderson, and I'm so excited because some of you know that Jasmine is now a college professor in Montana, um, teaching history, teaching math, and a couple of other courses at a Baptist College, and she is very, very happy. Um, She and I check in with each other um, about once a week because I love that girl. But I'm very, very excited to introduce um, our new co-host, Robin Jones-Gunn. And Robin, I love the fact that you already love this program. I do, I do. You already had a heart for um, what Jasmine and I were doing. It's so nice to meet someone who's (laughs) like-hearted. Yes, I agree. Kindred spirits. Yes. And I am so delighted to be here, Cheryl. This is a brand new beginning for us to work together, but it's not brand new to our friendship. So it's sweet to be able to do something together that we both love. Absolutely. So today you have a continuation on um, something that Jasmine started. So how right is that? As you come on as the new co-host, <laughs> there you go. You're, you're saying, I have a part two, because you know a lot of the uh, women, know of the women that we've been talking about. They're your heroines, too. And yes. one of your favorites was? Harriet Beecher Stowe. And I have listened to Jasmine's podcast on Harriet at least three times, and I recommend that before our listeners dive into this part two of Harriet Beecher Stowe that I'm going to share today, that they go back and listen to part one that Jasmine did a while ago. It's in the library. But I felt that there were some other fascinating bits about Harriet's life that we needed to know because she is a woman worth knowing. And definitely. you and I are very detail-oriented. We yes. like those little stories. We love the little yeah, the little touches. I know. And also, one of the interesting things about Harriet Beecher Stowe is how much she came up in the stories of so many other women. Yes. Including Elizabeth Blackwell. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Far-reaching, and especially at that time in history. So, she was born in 1811, Litchfield, Connecticut. And when she was five years old, her mother died. Her father was a Presbyterian minister, part of that whole Great Awakening time, and quite a preacher and teacher. He lived a long life and preached good and hard for a long time. She had, altogether, uh, Lyman Beecher, her father, had 13 children with three different wives. But when Harriet's mom was um, died of cholera, Harriet was only five years old, and that had a obviously huge effect on her life. She was very close to her brother, Henry Ward Beecher, that also comes up in many stories because so of many. his position at the uh, Plymouth Church in Brooklyn and their anti-slavery position. So when Harriet was growing up, she was often on her own reading. She found a barrel in her father's study and dug to the bottom. She read all the tracts, all the little leftover sermons. And there was a copy of the Arabian Nights. Oh, wow. And it entranced her. Mm -hmm. Just other worlds and this imagination. So I had a big effect on her. But I love that her uh, 
you know, story of her testimony, really, how she came to the Lord was when she was 14 years old. And she said that she was walking to church to go hear her father preach with the rest of the family. And she's looking at the butterflies and the flowers and the birds. And as she's in church listening to her father, as she wrote about it, she said that it was... like it always was. He could be speaking Choctaw, Native American. She didn't really get anything. But that morning, he was speaking about how Jesus said in John to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, slaves. I mean, this key theme that God resonated through her life. Jesus said, I no longer call you a servant. I call you my friends. And she knew that's what she needed. She wanted Jesus to be her friend. She had this turnaround moment of repentance. And when she got home, she waited, waited for her father to come home. He went up to his study and this is how she described it. She, she ran up She wrapped her arms around her father and she said, I have given myself to Jesus and he has taken me. Oh, I love it. I love it. (laughs) And it shows how sweet her relationship was with her father in that he wrapped his arms around her. He began crying Mm. and he said, a new flower has blossomed in the kingdom today. Which is so good for us to know because we have such an image of those staunch preachers, right? And how they were, you would imagine what a strict upbringing she would have had. Especially with 13. Yeah. And in this tender moment as a young teenager that she had the freedom to run into his study, throw her arms around him, and that he would affirm her with such a winsome selection of words. A new flower has blossomed in the kingdom today. Our life changed a lot in 1832 when the whole family moved to Cincinnati, which was kind of out west. Yes, it was. It was the boondocks then. Yeah. In fact, I was reading one book where it was considered so unsophisticated compared to like Boston and New York City and Connecticut. Yeah. And just sort of this trading post in a way. So because of the Ohio River and all that came up and down. And that's her first exposure really to seeing the slave trade and how there was, even though Ohio was a free state, Kentucky just on the other side um, had was was a slave state. And so those early teenagers affected her with her culture around her and where she lived, but she was so bright and got such a great education at her sister's school for young women. She began teaching at the school when she was 16. So it just shows how astute she was. So when they were in uh, Cincinnati, she joined in, and uh, Jasmine touched on this. She became part of a writer's club called the Semicolon Club. I love that. <laughs> I, I love a semicolon when it's used correctly, too. There is just something so wonderful about a semicolon. Well, they must have felt the same yes. way because that's where she met her close friend, Eliza, and Eliza's husband, Calvin Stowe. So... Eliza died a few years later after they met from cholera, and it had such an impact on both Harriet and on uh, Calvin. And within a year, they were married. Their their friendship grew from that. So we know that some of the things that Jasmine told us that uh, Calvin, as a professor, but they really had a life of poverty. There was always just depending on God to provide everything they needed. And the children started coming. First of all, she had twins, two girls, which were named Eliza and Harriet. Mm-hmm. And now, to just get an idea, 
Harriet, and she was also called Hattie by her friends, sweet Hattie. She had a very petite frame, quite demure, rugged, but I think she was four foot six, and oh her first goodness. babies were two girls, and it was unusual for both to survive, for right. the mom to survive. Especially especially not only at that time, but even in Cincinnati, because yes. Cincinnati was, because of the Ohio River and because of the industry, that's why they had cholera. It was the right. pollution. Oh, and soon after that, she had uh, a boy and then another boy. And then a daughter, and then her next boy um, died of cholera when he was just about eighteen mm. months old. Mm. And then, um, and then another boy. So altogether, seven children. Now, did Calvin have any children before? No, he didn't. Okay, so that's that's actually kind of good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, because be the, like more kids would be. It, the the poverty level. So Harriet started writing. She was encouraged. She was getting some input from her friends in the semicolon club. And she found that she could write articles for um, Goodies Lady, Ladies Magazine. Is that how it's pronounced? Goodies or Goodies? I don't know. It was very popular yes, during that time. I, mean, I read a couple of things on that, but I don't know. So that women who wanted to be in the know or have a little bit of political Influence. So Harriet could do that. She could get those opinions out there, all the influence from her preacher dad or preacher brothers. She had all this influence and they liked her writing. So they asked for more and more. And then in 1842, um, the Harper Brothers Publishing in New York published a collection of her stories called The Mayflower. Mm. And then she was a writer. She mm-hmm. was in. She'd published a book. The income helped her family. Then in 1846, Harriet got cholera. So it was a rough go. They were surprised she survived and she was declared an invalid. They told her she would be not able to function the rest of her life. So she had a little bit of help with the children. But her older sister, Catherine, insisted that she go to Vermont to... It was so popular then. This is in... um, it's called Brattleboro Healing Water Treatments. Yes, yes, we've done. We've hit the water treatments a couple times on this program. Yes, they were so popular then. Yeah, that was about the only spa or place you could get therapeutic help and rest. She was there a year. Wow! And do you know what they did? They woke her up at four o'clock in the morning. They wrapped her in wool blankets until she started sweating profusely. They opened the windows in Vermont and then they poured ice cold water on her with the blankets on. That's just awful. And then she'd go for a brisk walk and have a really bland breakfast. That was healing. Wow. Shock them out of, but after a year she came home and she was invigorated. She was able to jump in writing and cleaning. During the time she was gone, bless his heart, Calvin took care of, they had five kids at that point and he, he managed all the kids, took care of them, was teaching at the seminary, and she came home and just jumped right in. Wow. So it's, it's oh, not a surprise then that uh, a year later she had another child. And when she did, Calvin's health broke, oh. and he went off to the water treatments. <laughs> but he stayed a year and a half. 
smart man. <laughs> Not a year. It's just so hard to imagine. Yes. In our day and age. Yes. Take off for that amount of time. But one of the reasons she insisted he not come back too soon was another cholera outbreak. Wow. And um, the newborn baby then was succumbed to the cholera. And well, at 18 months, they, they lost mm. that little baby boy. Mm. So when they... When Calvin returns, then they have um, this opportunity. He's been offered a teaching position in Maine. Harriet packs up three of the kids. She takes off to Maine and leaves Calvin with the other three kids. And she goes to Maine. She finds a house. She buys furniture. She sets it up. Calvin arrives a few months later. When he gets there with the other children, a few days later, she has another baby. No. Stop it. It's no. just crazy. No. And how old is she by now? She's 41. Oh, my. And that's so dangerous in that yes. time and yes. at that age. Especially in those She's days. tough. She is. So We're I wanted four foot to six. give all that. Yeah, I wanted to, you know, add to what Jasmine had given us because this is this is a woman who has trusted God in in difficult times and it also shows from that kind of poverty and can do make it happen when uncle tom's cabin came out in this really overnight success success right the 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 money that came it didn't change her she was still very um my family's first Mm -hmm. and i want to honor god with everything i do and my husband is you know, the most important person here. And mm-hmm. it, it, it really shows her, her, her Priorities. background yeah. Yeah, and her hardiness. Yeah. So when they're in Maine, she is starting to write with just this new vigor and vim. And she wrote a letter to her sister-in-law. If, if any of our listeners are writers and they know how hard it is to find that time to do it, listen to how, Our sweet Hattie did it. She wrote to her sister-in-law, Since I began this note, I have been called off at least a dozen times. Once for the fish man to buy a codfish. Once to see a man who had brought me some baskets of apples. Once to see a bookman. Then to nurse the baby. Then into the kitchen to make chowder for dinner. And now... I am at it again, for nothing but deadly determination enables me to ever write. It is rowing against wind and tide. Wow, that is, that's true. (laughs) That's so true. (laughs) I was going to say, can we have an amen there, Cheryl? You can have a glorious amen. That is so true. I just, I had to write something yesterday. Well, actually, I was working on um, one of our podcasts, and it was just you know how it is. And you get Rowing interrupted against, and you're like, oh, should I just go with ice cream now? And, you know. <laughs> Rowing against wind and it tide. It is. That is exactly Nothing it. but deadly determination. Oh, wow. I think I needed me. that word. I know. I just, I had to be sure to include that in oh, the, absolutely. the notes. Because I thought it was perfect. So now it's 1850. It's November. She's writing lots of articles. There's a new magazine that's in Washington, D.C. called The National Era. Just eight pages, but they are... Um, an anti-slavery platform, they invite her to write something specifically for them, uh, just an article, and they pay her $100, which is huge. Huge. Yes. And she accepts the money in November and goes blank. She can't think of anything to write. 
November, December, January, it's February. Still, she has turned in nothing. She goes to church on a cold February morning and at communion. She closes her eyes and has a vision where she sees this old slave bent down as the wicked slave owner is beating him. Mm. And the slave looks up and forgives his master and he prays for his soul. And that was so vivid. She ran home. She uh, hadn't prepared anything for lunch. She went and pulled they had nothing. She pulled the fish wrapper that the fish had been in the day before and got a quill and ink and began writing oh my. this scene, which oh became my. the pivotal end toward oh the end my. of Uncle yes. Tom's cabin. Oh my. And the children are waiting and waiting <laughs> for lunch. Yes. And she sits them down. She reads this to them and they all begin weeping. Mm-hmm. And then um, her son, I think it was Frederick, who said... Um, Slavery is just really, oh, it was Henry. Henry cried, oh, mama, slavery is the most cruel thing in the world. And then she knew not only adults, but children need to know about this, Mm -hmm. that this has to be told. So she saw this story, but she didn't know what it was going to be. And she didn't start writing. Interestingly, she just began researching. She Mm. went to seek former slaves to interview Mm. them. She traveled some to get... So so still no article. Mm -hmm. She's gathering information, traveling. And when she sits down to write, she has a visitor. It's her father, the pastor who has these sermons. So her father... <clears throat> takes over the dining room table, the kitchen table, to prepare all his sermon notes, and she honors him. Mm-hmm. And he has no idea that his little daughter with all her children, so she sits on the back steps of the house, and the neighbors said they'd see her out there writing, writing on her lap. Wow. The book that's going to change the course of American yes. history. And this is before typewriter. Well, there were typewriters yes. only at the offices. Right. A few, but this no. is before... Anything that would be in a home like this. Wow. But even that just shows how she honored her father. Right. She wasn't like, no, 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 I got paid a hundred bucks. Yeah. yeah. Over. <laughs> yeah. Share this corner of the table with me. So when she finally uh, told the National Era, I have something to give you, but I want it to be like Charles Dickens has done a serialization, right? right? So that I'll do it in installments. It'll probably right. take a couple months. I'll give you a chapter right. a week. It's a great way to have a deadline. You it have is. to get that chapter done. Yes. And uh, so they announced it in the national era that um, she was writing an article and they titled it The Man That Was a Thing. Oh. Can you imagine if that had remained the title That's of horrid. Yeah. the book? Yeah. But we don't know who had the influence to change that, but uh, it was changed to Uncle Tom's Cabin, Life Among the Lowly. Mm. She did a chapter a week. Uh, Finally, in June was when the first chapter, the first installment came out and she she wrote like crazy and finished all 46 chapters. Wow. Saying all along, I'm only putting down what I what I see and always gave credit to God. He's he's giving me this story. He's inspiring me. He's telling me what to write. So in 19, I'm no, no, 1852. 
all the installments, you know, the serialization, the magazine has boosted its circulation, and now it's time to put it in a book. So there's a publisher in Boston that wants to publish it all together as one book. And uh, Professor Stowe went to Boston to negotiate that with them, and they said, if you pay for the paper to print it on, we will split the profits with you 50-50. Well, they had no money. They yeah. He couldn't go buy paper. No. no. So Professor So said, how about if you just give us 10% of the profits? That's great. And that sort of became the industry standard. That's kind of how it's oh. done. The publisher covered everything, and now yeah. the author gets a percentage of it. Right, right. First day, and I know Jasmine went over this, but I just have to, because it's, it's phenomenal when you think of that time in history. Right. So the first day, March 20th, 1852, 3,000 copies sold. And then the first month, there were 20,000 copies sold. By the end of the first year, 350,000 copies sold. Um it grew to 4 million sales in the U.S., 1.5 million sales in Britain, 4 million foreign sales translated into 60 languages. Oh. You know, it's the first thing to bring a consciousness of the wickedness yes. of slavery. It's the first thing to show the humanity of um, the slaves and what they were what they were going through. I'm like, these are your brothers. These are your sisters, especially in Christ, because um, yes. Uncle Tom is actually a type of Christ. Yes. And that's what people don't realize, that Uncle Tom is a type of Jesus. Jesus, who was in the form of God, but chose to be a servant and forgave us. And that's what a lot of people don't realize when, when they come to that, because, you know, it's been um, it's been panned. But I think a lot of the propaganda propaganda against Uncle Tom's cabin has come from the South. Which oh, absolutely doesn't like it and is you know tries to turn people against it and oh it's stereotyping, but it doesn't. It shows that the that the slaves were actually more noble and of a uh, you know than they were actually the humans, not the slave mm. holders, and uh, that's what people miss is the the reverse humanity. You know who's really the human? Who's really showing the kindness and the decency here? That's a great point. And if we would try to read Uncle Tom's Cabot right now, the language, the rhythm, all of it is so foreign to us. And the way that the culture was depicted at that time. But exactly what you said, it allowed the common man, common woman to read a story and get an insight when the propaganda had made it seem like it was completely different. Everybody. Everybody that's working as a slave in the South is just right. fine. And, yeah, you know, so it opened that window. Right. Well, you know, I just was listening to a podcast too recently, and it was just talking about how Gone with the Wind was all propaganda. Mm. How it was trying to say, look, we were all genteel and everybody was so happy in the South. And, you're, and Uncle Tom's Cabin blew the lid off of the idea that the South was this genteel and, and more sophisticated than the North. Yeah. That's exactly right. So what better way to promote that message than in the theater? But what's interesting is that the theater rights are obtained at that time were obtained differently than the print rights. And Harriet never pursued theatrical rights or for anything to come back to her so that when she was approached about having it 
made into a play, she refused and said, if theaters began to show respectable moral plays, young people of good Christian families would soon be permitted to see them and thus would develop the habit of regular theater going, ultimately doing themselves more harm than good. Oh, wow. So she just ignored that. Right. And a playwright came along, turned it into a play. It became a uh, well, I said, I don't know how it is with what's happened in London. I should have checked that to see how some plays have gone decades in London right, stage. Right. But in the U.S., it was performed continuously for 81 years. Crazy. And Crazy. it was even turned into a musical. There were different varieties of it. I mean, think about King and I. Right. We're talking about right. Uncle Tom and Harriet right. Beecher Stowe. But none of it with Harriet's permission. Right. None of her permission. And she never made a penny off it. And she never talked about it. Nor did Professor Stowe. Nor did they. they didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. It was just whatever. Right. Because she did talk about how that wasn't her point. Her point was to tell, as she had with everything she wrote, the message that God is love, God is love in all her books, everything she wanted to demonstrate that. So she was so focused on, I don't care, this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm -hmm. I'll just go write another article, another right. story. Right. So the next book that she wrote is interesting because she had so much hate mail. Ba bags and bags and bags were wow. delivered to her door from the South. Wow. Threats. Wow. Uh, it, it was such an opposition to her uh, her position, not just because she wrote the book, but because of the family she was connected to and mm -hmm. because she was female. Right. And so she'd taken this stand. And so there she is being so set on conveying the message and yet the opposition s just squelched her spirit. She wow. just really had this deep depression. So what she th believed she needed to do was to explain herself and combat the mm. the message and she went to work and her next book she wrote was uh keys to uncle uh, it's called a key to uncle tom's cabin and in the book she listed all her resources all her reasonings everything and it helped her a lot but it also was interesting that it didn't change anyone's no. opinion already uh, yep. it yep. was just for her to kind of get that mm -hmm. out but it freed her and then she went on to write quite a bit more. Mm. Interesting. So it's kind of cathartic, you know, and it just shows like, this is all true. What I wrote, it's like, what do you call it? Like historical fiction, but it's true. These people are going through this. This is wrong. I know that Elizabeth Blackwell was a friend of hers along with another. She was part of a, a very large anti-slavery group right. that even helped with the Underground Railroad. Right. They were big with that, you know. So there she is. She's she's emotionally, mentally freed up, and she received an invitation from the um, uh, Glasgow Anti-Slavery Society to go to England and Scotland and lecture, and they paid her way. Wow. So she accepted that invitation, glad six, to get out of town. Yes. Oh, I bet. <laughs> right, because England was very, by this time, because of uh, William Wilberforce and Newton, they had they had they hadn't had they had abolished slavery um, early in 1700s. Right, they were far ahead of mm -hmm. the U.S., so they wanted to support what she was doing. Excellent, yeah. And so uh, she sailed to England. Calvin came with her for just six weeks. 
but also her brother, Charles, came with her. And they, Harriet and Charles went on for three months afterwards and toured Europe. And out of that tour came another book called Sunny Memories of Foreign Lands. Mm. And what's kind of interesting is that Professor Stowe chose to add a foreword to that book. He wrote 54 pages, really tiny print, just giving his opinion on slavery, telling about everything that happened in Scotland at these lectures. And um, it was it stayed in the book when it wow. was printed. Can you imagine? So I think, again, it shows how she honored him. Like, my I, husband has something yes. to say. It has nothing to do with what her book he was. He wrote a foreword to the book. It's travel only 54 log. pages. I mean, most are like five pages long, right? Yes. Yeah, pretty much. So it was. she was a huge success. In right. Edinburgh, there were 200 and, I mean, no, 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 2,500 that gathered wow. to hear her speak. Wow. Wow. She collected funds to come back. And, you know, the first thing she did when she got her first royalty check, her first royalty check was $10,000. Wow. And she used it to free slaves. Wow. And she bought clothes for her children. Wow. She was so humble. She never owned more than five dresses at one time. Wow. And was just not affected by Mm -hmm. all this wealth. Mm -hmm. She was so generous. It went out. Anyone that asked, she'd Mm -hmm. give. She'd give um, to her detriment off. Right. Often, because she didn't know what they were going to use it for. And she actually had um, needed a dress when she was in England, all this speaking. And someone suggested, oh, here's this woman's a wonderful dressmaker. Uh, let her come and fit you. The next day in the London Times, it says Harriet has given in to having a dress made in by these uh, poor, miserable white slave uh, children who are treated uh, worse than the slaves on the ben- uh, plantations in the U.S. Because she had no idea. She thought the lady that was right. measuring was going to make the dress. Right, so right. oppositions right. continually. After um, uh, Calvin sailed home and, and Harriet and her brother Charles went on this tour, she was so excited to go to Frankfurt to a museum because she wanted to see some of the um, things about Goethe, who was one of her favorites. She quoted him in her books, and, and the guide took them to where they were supposed to. She thought, from her limited German, that she was going to see Goethe's Bible, and they took her in the room and showed her the case, and there was a beat of old pair of shoes, and the guide said, this is Goethe's shoes. And it tickled her so much, she burst out laughing, and the guide thought she was so rude, he kicked her out. No. She couldn't. <laughs> and I thought that, when I read that, I thought, we could be friends. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. It reminds me of the C.S. Lewis tour you took one time. Yes. Yes. The things that, yes, um, yes. at that age, the, yes. the things that that tickled her, even right. in this great tour of, of the continent. Right. So when she returned home, it was clear that she was considered part of the head of the abolitionist movement, but her focus was still on her children. She left mm-hmm. them for months and months. Right. So there was an opportunity for her to return to England because the funds kept coming mm-hmm. in and she didn't think about how much money they had, but she just knew that, well, I can now take my older children to mm. to see Europe. This is important. My daughters can go to school in Paris. Mm-hmm. But it is estimated that she was receiving $6,000 a month in the currency of that time, which today, in a year's salary, she would be getting $2.5 a year wow. from book sales. Wow. Unbelievable. Right. She returned to England and had her three oldest children. 
She finished her latest novel, On the Crossing uh, Across the Atlantic, and that was um, titled Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp. It was a huge success. But the funnest thing that happened on that trip when she got to England is that Queen Victoria had read Uncle Tom's Cabin. Wow. And now, pretty soon, this Dread, her her next anti-slavery book, was, was coming out. So... After Harriet had been there a month, Queen Victoria, because it was impossible by royal etiquette to, uh, you know, extend an invitation to these Americans because they had not formally been presented at court. Wow. So uh, there was a chance encounter arranged on a platform of a railway station where the two families happened to to oh my be goodness. changing trains. Wow. I love this story because yes. when they recognized, oh, who was there? Professor Stowe immediately bowed to Prince Albert Aww. and Prince Albert immediately bowed back and Aww. then Professor Stowe bowed. And yeah, Harriet said it, it was five times of these men <laughs> bobbing back and forth. And in the midst of this, Harriet comes to her senses and she clumsily Curtsies, but she's not very stable. And so um, Victoria reaches out her hand and helps her up. And the two women step to the side and um, they were whispering and probably giggling at their husbands who are still over there bobbing back and forth. My goodness, and yes. it was a very short conversation, but there was assurance from the queen that they would meet again now that wow. this invitation, oh, you know. Right. So the invitation came, not you know, uh-huh. too much longer after that. And uh, Harriet was invited to dine with Victoria and Albert at Windsor. Wow. When they did, it was just Harriet. And after the meal, they went aside to a sitting room where the two women, I mean, think of it. Here's yes. Victoria, the most powerful woman in the world. Right. The sun doesn't set on the British Empire. Right. And Harriet, the most influential woman in the world. Both of them in just barely 40s and they're sitting by the fire and Queen Victoria is telling her all her favorite parts about her books. And they both honored and loved their children, too. That was very much. Both of them were known for loving their children. Yes. So when Harriet now has had these amazing experiences and she's traveled some more through Italy and has crazy adventures. She returns home and her son Henry has gone off to Dartmouth and he drowns Mm. in a boating accident. And that really affected her because it's been eight years since um, Uncle Tom's Cabin came out and it was actually at nine years after the release of the book that the Civil War broke out. Right. So here's our nation in this division. She's lost her 19-year-old son and now her 20-year-old son, Frederick, enlists to go mm. and fight in the Civil War. Right. And it he's, he's stationed in Washington, D.C. And uh, Harriet goes to meet him there because she's invited to go to a dinner in D.C. at Thanksgiving that is uh, hosting a thousand former slaves. Mm. And after that dinner, the next day, she's invited to the White House. And that's where she meets Abraham Lincoln. Mm. And it's 
been said that he was sitting by the fire right. with his long legs up on the mantle when she walked in, this little four foot nothing, what <laughs> was six foot five Abraham Lincoln. And he stood up and made that great statement. So this is the little lady who made this big war. And the Civil War was on, and the, yeah. the nation was affected by this novel to the point that the abolitionists were able to move forward with their message. You know, though, what's interesting about Harriet Beecher Stowe, because a lot of people think the Civil War didn't go far enough, and it, in some ways it didn't, but Harriet, the fact that she would have Thanksgiving with former slaves, mm. that she sat down and ate, and she saw, she's like, we're equal, brothers, exactly. sisters, where you had some people that would fight for this, you fight for the rights of slave to be free, but they still were like, but, you know, um, equal. And she was like, no, equal. Yep. Absolutely equal. And that came also from that Presbyterian. And later she joined a congregational church, I think, for a while because they taught that all men and women were created equal. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what she was, you know, really intense about. Exactly. And it shows in the way she writes, you right. know, how she presents her characters, but so much so in her life because she went on to write uh, 10 more books, even during the Civil War and everything that's happening. But then she and Calvin moved to Hartford. He had retired from teaching and she suggested that he write a book, mm. <laughs> you know, Uh-oh, 54 pages stop of with yeah. forwards on my yes. books. Right. And she suggested that he write the origin and history of the books of the Bible. It took him several years. He did. And it was a bestseller. Wow. So she was right. He had all that knowledge wow. and all that wow. experience. Plus it helped that is it kept him occupied. Yeah. From writing forwards to her books. But <laughs> They decided when they moved to Hartford to buy a fixer upper Uh and this house a year and a half after they bought it, it still wasn't repaired, but he had set up a little room in the back where he could write. And while he was there one day, uh, he fell asleep in the chair and the plumbing burst and he was just drowned in plaster and water. And one account said that the bathtub came through the ceiling, but that was so oh my. it was a mess. And oh, yeah. after they'd had that house for um, I, years, but it was always being repaired and repaired, her family convinced her to move into another house in Hartford, which needed much less attention. And when she did, when they moved there, it's so sweet because she opened her house every day at four o'clock for tea for anyone who would come, tea and biscuits mm. and conversation. I love that. And... During this time, as the Civil War is raging, Frederick is fighting at Gettysburg and a fragment of a shell goes through his right ear, Mm. lodges in his brain, it Mm. stays there, and he's now addicted to morphine, he's Mm. uh, an alcoholic, he goes to Boston to try to continue his studies for law. People delighted in writing to Harriet and telling her where they saw her son Mm. stumbling around, Mm. the drunken fool. Mm. So Civil War ends. The South hate two people, Lincoln, and he's assassinated. Right. And they hate Harriet Harriet. Beecher Stowe. Right. What does she do? She buys a plantation in northern Florida and goes south and lives there and starts a school and teaches former slaves. Wow. And Robert E. Lee, 
who was so honored still after the war in the South yes. because he was so interested in education. Right. He takes interest in what she's doing and he publicly and privately praises her for wow. what she's doing. Wow. But the point of buying this, this plantation was so that Frederick, who's been injured at Gettysburg, would have something to do. And right. he was a terrible ranch manager. Yeah. And the slaves that were now given jobs were not able to follow him. He didn't. He didn't manage. He didn't lead. It was a mess for two years. Wow. And the South was in chaos. So uh, she sold that plantation, bought a ranch that had oranges. And they had oranges, oranges, oranges. It worked well. Every winter they would go down there. Frederick tried to manage it, gave up after two years. They suggested that he go out to see take a take a sail he he got as far as san francisco headed for the pacific and was never heard of again wow and within a, a short time after they began to give up hope of ever hearing from her her hair went from gray to white just overnight oh. and just the loss you know right that time in history this the loss of your children right 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 so painful so the trains began to start having business back in the south by northerners wanting to go to Florida for winter right? because of Harriet's writing. Wow. Her influence still, mm-hmm. God is love. And she went to New Orleans during that time and was applauded in the streets. Wow. So they no longer hated her. They wow. saw yes. her love just right. flowed out. Right. So toward the end of her days, then she settles, stops going to... Florida. She settled at the second home in um, Connecticut. And at 60 years old, she wrote four books. Wow. (laughs) Including Women in Sacred History. Wow. And some children's books. Now, what's interesting is that she was invited to go on a lecture tour. And she did two years in a row, first to New England. And she talked about how God is love. And she went on a second tour Chicago, Ohio, Pennsylvania. She's 64 years old. Wow. 62. 62 years old. My age. Great age. I know. Young. Go. No, just kidding. I yes. feel so old. <laughs> but they had an interesting neighbor right next to them at this second house that they bought in, in Hartford. And he was also a writer, Samuel Clemens, as wow. we know as yes, Mark Twain. Mark Twain. Wow. He was 25 years younger than Harriet, and she said the reason she liked him so much and enjoyed his company was because, unlike almost everyone else I've ever met, he refuses to treat me with reverence. Oh, wow. Of course. <laughs> of course. You'd expect that of Mark Twain. I know. So um, he has one book on his shelf, and you can tour his house, mm-hmm. and there's one of her books on the, sh- the shelf, and it's her very last book, a children's book called A Dog's Mission. It's a story about a young boy with all her sweet memories of her young boys. Oh, right. And having lost three boys, and it's interesting that that's the one book that he kept or has, mm. and uh, three years later... He published a little book called The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Oh, a young boy. So did mm-hmm. he yeah, was get she a little inspiration? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she was definitely an influencer. Mm-hmm. Um, Professor Stowe passed away and uh, she kept to the house, had a nurse. 
they called it a second childhood, which we would now say Alzheimer's right. or right. dementia. Right. And uh, uh, yeah, and Mark Twain even wrote about her kind of wandering around singing to herself in the garden. But uh, she told her nurse one night that she had been waiting a long time to meet her maker. And then she woke at midnight and said, I have had such a beautiful dream. She smiled at her bedside nurse and said, I love you. And those were her final words. Oh, that's precious. I mean, just that message got right. put on her life, that God's yes. love exuded from her and everything. And then one year after her death, a newspaper reporter spotted a black woman putting flowers on her grave. And he came up and asked permission to photograph her. The woman refused and said, sir, this is strictly between Mrs. Stowe and her friends. I love that. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's precious. That's so What precious. a woman. Yes, I love it. And, and again, those little details uh, bring so much to mention to these women because the women we're talking about are real women and they lived at a real time. And um, even though their culture was different, their struggles, um, especially emotionally, are the same as ours. Exactly. And it was so good. The loss. That's right. So she had but her sense. faithfulness to the Lord and always giving him credit and, and being true to that message that God is love and the, the world was, was changed by that message. Yeah, dramatically. Mm-hmm. And in, you know, sometimes, you know, where England had this smooth passage into the anti-slavery, of course, it, it took longer to transmit to the uh, Caribbean and other places. But um, the United States had to have this abrupt. I just listened to a podcast and it was like they were asking these two historians, actually three historians, was there any other way but war? And they said, no. Wow. No. And they said, do you think that it would eventually die out? And they said, no, no, because they were relying on it too much in the South economically. And they said they would have kept to it and they weren't even willing to, you know, really release it afterwards. It took a war. And, you yes. know, it kind of reminds me of when the Lord comes again, it's going to take a war. <laughs> it's wow. going to take a war. Boy, that's and, true. You know, but. It's got to be fought by the Lord. But that's amazing. Thank you for those details. I hope you enjoyed, um, as I did, hearing all these details about Harriet Beecher Stowe. Rob and I will be back next week with another uh, podcast um, as we're moving forward. We're excited to um, that you're listening and to come into your attention span and that you like these women like we do, right? So this is Cheryl Broderson and Robin jones Gunn. And we want to thank you again and say until next week, goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and our new co-host, Robin Jones-Gunn. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Robin on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at WWK at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Robin Jones-Gunn. 